Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded during the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. My guest today is Dr. Judith Jacoby, PharmD, FCCM. She's a critical care pharmacy specialist at Methodist Hospital Clarion Health in Indianapolis, Indiana, and she is the immediate past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She's taken time out of her schedule to be with us today to discuss the drug shortage issues in the ICU. And uh, I know this was short notice, but thank you again so very much for doing this. My pleasure to be with you. Um, uh, I'm a practicing intensivist. This has come up in my life in ways that I've never actually seen before. In I started medical school in 1990. I'd never heard of anything like this where just one day on rounds, I take more than half of my patients are neurosurgical. Propofol is one of my most important pieces in my armamentarium. And our critical care clinical pharmacist tells me, yeah, you can't get it anymore. Or please try not to use it anymore. That, asked the, in that way. And... Um, so I went to you to see what our what our society thinks about this, to share the perspective with some of the members. Um, and so I'll let you get started. Well, I share your frustration. I, as a pharmacist, uh, often am in the position to have to uh, change workflow to try and address uh, a critical shortage, uh, come up with alternatives, uh, set in place action plans to deal with it as uh, we uh, try to deal with the problems uh, that these drug shortages have created. And... Uh, I really sympathize with all practitioners because certainly, although critical care and anesthesia medications have been widely affected, chemotherapy and many other drug products uh, are similarly problematic at various times. And so a number of organizations have begun to work with the FDA uh, to try and understand some of the origins of the problem and ideally find ways to help reduce the problem in the future. And uh, a recent consensus conference was held, uh, sponsored by the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, uh, as well as the American Society of Anesthesiology, uh, Oncology Group ASCO, and the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, and SCCM sent a representative uh, to become involved uh, and hopefully help contribute to future uh, shortage abatement prevent, right. and prevention. And I remember, again, we've had a chance to talk a little bit beforehand. Um, again, it was one of just sheer surprise, and every day it seems like there would be a new drug where I wouldn't think it would ever happen. And I, I, we had come up with a list together, and I just wanted to talk about it for the for the listeners. So we mentioned propofol, um, furosemide, a couple of different significant chemotherapeutic agents, um, and and. I guess you're going to talk about this next, but you said that the 
the reasons behind them are, are highly individualized and highly variable and often uh, complex and very difficult to treat with a single sort of magic bullet, right, if you'd like to talk about that. Yes, it, it really has uh, been a variety of different reasons. For products that have generic production, uh, there is not a lot of profit margin. And uh, certainly, although there may be multiple sources, m- several companies making a drug product, uh, that they really lack the ability when one key producer is uh, eliminated from the equation, the others either can't flex up quickly enough uh, because they didn't know it was coming. Uh, the FDA may or may not know that it's coming and or, or have the ability to warn other groups. And uh, so in some cases, although there's lack of redundancy, even when there's a, a multiple source product, the other groups may not be able to respond quickly. And certainly with some specific entity uh, products, certainly a single source product, if there's a major break in the supply of the key raw materials, uh, that certainly could impact availability. And uh, I think in some cases it's been some manufacturing problems and and the FDA perhaps scrutinizing some factories a bit more closely, and that has uh, led to some interruptions in our supplies as well. One of the other questions I was going to ask you, and I've been trying to think about this more and more, um, and... um, you're you're going to talk to us about the the role of the FDA and all this, but um, but I would imagine as a pr- clinician, one of the roles of government should be to help in something like this. And I just wanted to ask you when you, when you talk about the the FDA, what your personal thoughts should be about perhaps what the role should be, even if it if it's if it's uh, limited now. You know, it's surprising. Uh, One of the things that we learned in this conference is that although the FDA certainly can work with different uh, firms to uh, encourage uh, others to flex up and and help uh, abate with a shortage, they certainly cannot force a manufacturer to to do that or to start making a product when they don't. And Although firms are asked to let the FDA know that a problem is coming, they don't have to. And so the FDA may be caught uh, by surprise as much as anyone else is. And uh, surprisingly, the FDA is very understaffed to handle any of these shortages. Apparently, there's just a handful of people that actually work on these issues. And, and, and the other thing you were teaching me before is that it is their role that if a company is making a product, that they regulate it to make sure that it's safe. But the issue is if the company says, we're making a product, you found something wrong with it, we're going to stop making it, <laughs> there's, no, there's no next step, right? Correct, potentially not. And and while other generic pr- companies can step in to start making the product, there's uh, certainly uh, a significant number of regulatory steps that a company would have to go through to initiate production of a product they've never made before. And that's certainly a, a delay that's going to influence their ability to respond quickly. And so uh, I, I would imagine, I mean, I wrote down here, this is my last question for you, is will this go away? Is your sense as part of the leadership of both critical care and pharmacy that that hopefully whatever perfect storm of events have occurred to make this happen, will it get better? Is there some hope? <laughs> 
I think there's very little hope that this is going to get better anytime soon. And uh, it's um, uh, really probably a, a lot of reasons. Uh, there are fewer, I think, generic p- manufacturers than there used to be. And perhaps the economy's driven a little bit of that. Uh, if you have a, a narrow margin and supplies or whatever are more expensive, uh, there may be less profit motivation. And a lot of these firms have merged, and, and that alone reduces the number of companies. It's like the airlines. And so uh, uh, much like the airline mergers, the, the number of uh, flight routes don't increase. They often decrease. And so I think we're going to see this as an ongoing problem. And again, still trying to get my mind around this and and, uh, America, number one. And it's not about discovering new anything. It's it's production. It's continued making enough of these drugs that already exist, right? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, we we are cautious in the U.S. about where we purchase product from. And certainly there are various other manufacturers around the world making these products. Uh, But frankly, uh, the FDA, uh, although they allowed us, for example, with propofol to import propofol from Europe, uh, they couldn't meet the demand either. And in some cases, I think uh, uh, the FDA prevents from importing they were fr- they frown upon it it's yes. not they're not encouraging that right? correct correct because they don't have as co- the same type of control over the manufacturing practices in other countries and certainly if we think back to heparin production and uh, the scrutiny of generic companies uh, in the in the east uh, there were some real problems with production and and so that's why they don't encourage us to import drugs either and uh, you were mentioning to me before that it isn't my imagination that because I was hearing around New York that some hospitals would have some drugs and some wouldn't. Do you want to help me understand that a little bit? Well, I'm not sure I entirely <laughs> understand that either, but I believe that's the case. And so if a manufacturer has a particularly important client in their distribution chain, I wouldn't be at all surprised But what they prioritize delivery to their best clients. And so they have a limited supply and wherever it goes, it goes. Yes, I, I I, I, that's my suspicion. I have no proof of that. But uh, uh, when I hear of the problems with shortages in one region that, for example, we don't experience, I have to wonder if that isn't a a cause. Well, again, I was just, uh, as I try to do to keep up with the literature, I was reading in the New England Journal about rivaroxaban and apixaban, these new anti-10A inhibitors, and and I don't have Lasix. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a very, very challenging time. You know, someone like myself who's not a, a surgeon and my major job is to keep all of these drugs straight in my head and know when they need to be given and to have some of these tools taken away. You know, I, I said it before about managing my neurosurgical patients without propofol. It's, it's, I, there isn't an equivalent drug that I can replace it with now. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. And I would imagine that it's, it's complex to communicate that to the lay press, it's confusing that, you know, your loved one is in the ICU and we're kind of running a little short on this and run down to the store and get some more kind of thing, you know? 
Oh, that's very much true, that the lay uh, population doesn't really understand, uh, certainly the drugs, I'm not sure we understand the drug supply chain all the time, and, and so, yes, it is hard uh, to appreciate that you're in a great big hospital and can't get some very basic medications. Uh, and, and in some cases, we can come up with a suitable alternative, but frankly, when we start to substitute a product uh, in, in, instead of something that the nurses are used to. Uh, they have different names, different doses, in some cases different administration techniques. Uh, we certainly may run into additional expense to buy a different product, and we certainly probably create a drug error risk by suddenly substituting something people aren't familiar right, with. Right, changing so routine it, practice. It I thought really, that was a really important point. It has layers of problems, yes. Um, and then the, the last point, which I can just read in here, was mentioning that the Society of Critical Care Medicine has added some links with information on, on shortages to the website uh, and will be taking part in, in future meetings. Um, well, Dr. Jacoby, I was really hoping that we could get a chance to talk about this. I didn't know it would turn to a podcast, and I'm very glad it did. And um, I'm looking forward. <laughs> I'm going to keep hope because I, I want it to go away and I want to go back to practicing medicine the way I was used to. We've been speaking today with Dr. Judith Jacoby. Uh, PharmD FCCM. She's a critical care pharmacy specialist at Methodist Hospital Clarion Health in Indiana, and she's the immediate past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And she's been taking some time out of her schedule to help me understand some of the issues around the very real recent drug shortages in critical care. Thank you again so very much. You have uh, my sincere appreciation, and I hope others uh, can benefit from hearing some of this material as well. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Advance your understanding of acute kidney injury and gain effective strategies for developing implementing, and performing protocols for managing the condition. Register for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's latest conference in the Clinical Focus Series, Acute Kidney Injury and Treatment Protocols, to be held March 10th and 11th, 2011, in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Participants will have the opportunity to discuss case studies and review practical applications of continuous renal replacement therapy techniques with faculty during workshop sessions. For more information and to register, visit www.sccm.org slash clinical focus or contact SCCM Customer Service. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD of CCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i critical care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.